Hi, and welcome back to the Jubilee Plus podcast. I'm Abby Thomas, and today I'm bringing you a seminar from the wonderful Churches That Change Communities Conference 2023. The theme this year was Standing in the Gap, and today we'll be hearing from Paul Brown with a seminar entitled The Missing Class. Right, you can clap now if you want. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, this is this is proper graveyard shift time, and it we've had three, well, two main sessions which are fantastic. We've had a wonderful seminar from Sam Ward this morning, which really meshes with what I'm going to say. Um, um, before I go on, I just want to say well done to those of you who are online sticking with a whole day. Maybe you haven't stuck with it. Maybe you're gone and I'm speaking to nobody. I don't know. <laughs> but but, but ho- hopefully you're still there and you're still with us. If you did, who was in the Sam Ward seminar? So uh, uh, maybe half of you. Thank you. Sam was talking about church for the, for the chaotic, which is you know, an interesting title for, pe- for people who come from chaotic backgrounds and live chaotic lives. The missing class, which, which is what we're talking about, is not just the chaotic. There are people who would call themselves working class, and you could do a seminar on discussing what that means. But there are people who call themselves working class, who are earning very good money, who are living in nice houses who, you know, who live a good life. They're holidaying in the Maldives and all the rest of it, but are very much working class. Some of them are uh, bank robbers and things like that. But, or some of them have got a building firm or whatever. Do you see what I mean? I'm not just talking about the chaotic where, as I run through this subject. Does that, does that make sense? Because I think that, that should be helpful for you. I forgot to press a little timer here because I can just talk and keep telling stories. So I've put a timer. So when you hear the alarm go off, you'll know I've spoken for 35 minutes, right? Um, but, but what we're talking about is the missing class and, and hopefully we'll talk about how to see the so-called missing class get into church because the church is predominantly, the dominant culture in the church in the UK, with some obvious exceptions, is a middle class one. And we're just going to look at that and look at why that, not why that is, but how we can change that, okay? So in recent years, the the working classes have increasingly been portrayed uh, as a cultural disgrace, partly politically, partly through some of the media, often linked with the politics. It's gone from the salt of the earth to the scum of the earth. And I know I'm generalising, you can say, well, that's... Not the, my experience, that's not my case. But generally speaking, I think that's true. There's, there's a social anthropologist who, who I read and actually stalked on email and t- to gain a meet with her, and I managed to meet with her over a coffee once. Her name is Gillian Evans, and she wrote this. The relationship between the social classes in England hinges on a segregation that is emotionally structured through mutual disdain. And then she goes on to explain that the differences between people of distinct classes are deeply felt and not just defined by occupation. And that overcoming them isn't going to be a simple intellectual decision or a change in economic fortunes. She says the challenge 
is how far we can overcome the embodied and largely unconscious history of how we've come to value ourselves as a particular kind of person. We like, we're tribal, aren't we? And we like to flock with people like us. And, and you can build successful churches like that by reaching out to people like us. But the challenge is there is largely a class missing from our churches. A fellow I know, the Reverend Gary Jenkins, he wrote on Ian Paul's blog. If you, if you, read, if you don't read Ian Paul's blog, it's worth a read. An Anglican blogger. But Gary Jenkins said this, the working classes are, I believe, a missiologically significant cultural group. By this I mean they are a group of people with particular cultural values, customs and ideas in common that we need to take into account if we are to engage in effective mission towards and with them, as we would with any other cultural group. And I think that's where churches have made mistakes because they think, well, that group of people are English or British like me. They speak the same language as me. So we don't see them as a culturally different group. There's the mistake because I think the values held, and if you read the book, interestingly, uh, you refer to the book as divides because very cleverly on the cover, the word invisible is quite invisible. The book's called Invisible Divides because we don't see the divides very often. And part of the reason for that book is to make those divides visible. You think, oh yeah, of course, I see that. I see the difference in our attitude to our attitude to money or our, our attitude to education, uh, different, different things where there's fundamental differences. We, if we're aware of, we can begin to reach into a culturally very different group. Does that make sense? You're still with me? Because it is late, right? So, so Gary Jenkins was talking about that, and, and really, so that means we need to make changes because the harvest is plentiful, isn't it? We are living in a post-Christian nation where there's, where there's large numbers of people who are not believers. In fact, it's less than 10% of the population now even attend church, isn't it? So that's a lot of people. A lot of people who ne desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus. And you live next door to those people or live on the same street or the same block as those people. You work with those people. And if you understand that there's cultural differences, you see, when we're, we're, as a church, if, if you find out, oh, there's a, there's a big Afghan, refugee Afghan community established in my town, a lot of churches would see that and think, no, we need to get the gospel to them because the harvest is plentiful. But they're different to us. We're going to need to learn some of the culture. We're going to need to maybe even learn some language so we can speak more effectively with that people. Because the motivation is a group of people who desperately need to hear the gospel who are culturally different. We need to apply a similar, a similar thing to reaching the working class, not just the chaotic people who are different from the large majority of people in the church. We want to have a harvest, don't we? 
You know, I, I, really, I really love that bit where the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church at Rome in, chap, in Romans chapter 1, he said, I've longed to come to you and I've been prevented from doing so until now that I may have a harvest among you. And I think so often we don't think harvest either. We think, you know, and we celebrate the ones and twos and I celebrate the ones and twos. But we often have a small-minded attitude to salvation, to the gospel having an effect, to lives changed, to com- and ultimately community transformation. We may get to some of that in a little while. Because, because we, for too long, the church has been small, and for too long, the church has felt ineffective. Not hasn't always been ineffective, but it's felt ineffective. It's like little old me. But no, I long, the apostle said, I long to have a harvest among you. Let's think harvest, shall we? You still awake? Thank you. <laughs> so we need to be those who look for harvest. And one of the things, I want to get to a few illustrations from personal experience in a little while. But one of the things I want to, want to say, and maybe I'm preaching to the converted, but it's about people, not projects. And I know there'll be a lot of projects represented in this room, but we must value the missing class as people. And don't make projects out of them. They're people who are made in the image of God, people who always deserve dignity. And there are some who would teach us that to win the nation for Christ... Well, you first of all need to influence the elites. This is the best strategy. I've heard this talk. I've been to seminars on this. So if you reach the politicians and the banking, people in the banking industry and those in arts and media, you go to the top, you affect the culture, and that, you know, a bit like trickle-down economics, if you've heard of that, that don't work either. I, <laughs> well, we're finding that out now, aren't we? I... I I don't believe that's true. Again, Gary Jenkins, in that very effective blog that he wrote, he said, the trickle-down theory of mission, focus on the rich, powerful, clever, and the influential first, in order that the effect may trickle down to the lower order in due course, much loved by English evangelicals, is not only contrary to the grain of scripture, but has demonstrably failed. Rather, the effect of this policy has been to produce a strongly middle-class church peculiarly ill-suited to ministry among working-class people. I mean, it couldn't be no clearer, could it? The, The way I see it, historically, culture changing gospel advance in the UK has almost always been amongst the working class, the man and woman in the street. You know, I think it was Sam Wald, in his seminar, he referred to the Salvation Army. William Booth has always been a hero of mine from my early days as a Christian. And the Salvation Army in in its early years was radical. And if you read about him, read some of the books written about him and written about him. It's so good. I mean, they were far from being a respectable middle-class movement. The founder, William Booth's converts and those who who went out with him on missionary work, were often drawn from the poorer end of Victorian society, certainly after they were established. And as a result, the Salvation Army understood working class 
people and their values and what they went through in life. And, and, and working class in Victorian England was very different from working class now. Well, maybe not so much. But they were able to communicate comfortably with the people who were essentially ignored by the middle class churches of the day. And that contributed to their success. And I could stand here and tell you stories about some great people. Preachers who used to be prize fighters. And if the crowd, and the crowd were often quite rowdy, if they were getting a bit too rowdy, would slowly walk down the centre aisle, rolling up their sleeves, looking at the people who potentially were trouble. Right? But these were the preachers. One guy who couldn't read or write, who was a chimney sweep. Right? He, had a, he was a boy chimney sweep and he became a chimney, chimney sweep entrepreneur. He had a few boys going up chimneys for him. Couldn't read or write, but he had enough money to pay someone, a child, to read the scriptures to him so he could memorise them. <laughs> Why was he doing that? So he could reach his peers with the gospel. Passionate. That's the Salvation Army, right? Almost 100 years before the Salvation Army, again, I like my church history, in the in 18th century Britain, the Methodist pioneers like George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers and, and, and others were led to preach outside coal mines and in market squares, on heaths and fields, partly because the pulpits of the established church were refused them. They, were they weren't allowed to preach in church because how dare they preach to the working class? They saw fantastic success as they reached out. You know, there's, there's a famous story of the, the colliers of uh, it, just outside of Bristol. And George Whitfield went and stood on a, a slight rise of the ground, just as the coal miners, and coal miners then were, they were seen, they were, they, they were feared, they were held in a bit of awe and disgust, really. They weren't liked. They were rowdy and violent and a, a, a people of their own, right? George Whitfield went out, and as they were leaving the coal mine, he began to speak and preach to them. And by the grace of God, a couple of hundred gathered and heard him. And that's the, the famous line where, they, where it says, their tears cut white gutters in their coal-blackened faces. Those people would never have been in the church. They weren't allowed in. In fact, I've been into my local Anglican church building and they've got in there some poor rooms, right? I don't know if you knew this. So they've got, you've got the, the, the pulpit at the front and the pews and all the stuff, but up behind where the preacher stands, there's, there's two rooms accessed by a sort of back staircase with some grills in the front and that's where the poor people were allowed to go, right? So they could hear the preacher um, but no one could see them, and they couldn't see anyone else, so it was all very nice. That was the attitude of the established church at the time. Right? But Whitfield and others went out to people and loved them and preached them. I've tried to do a, a version of that with my life. We moved to, we came from suburbia, from northwest Kent, and we moved into Bermondsey. Um, I've been on staff 30 years next year. I started as a very young child, right? For 30 years, I've been on staff within the church. That's amazing, isn't it? Right? But in that time, I've tried to, I've actively sought to implant myself into a community I love. 
and I've worked at it. So I'm not talking about mission, I'm not talking about ministries or projects. I'm talking about being in a community with, with, with a large number of working class people. It's changing. London's changed. There's, gentrification has swept through London, but because of the local council's foresight of building so many social houses, Bermondsey, when I moved there, Bermondsey had 90-something percent, 98% of the housing was social housing. That's remarkable, isn't it? But so it gives a flavour. What it meant was an established community of people. Lots of them worked in either the docks or the related industries which grew up around the docks as foodstuffs came in. So biscuit factories and chocolate factories and jam factories, Hartley Jam, Peak Friends Biscuits, all these firms. Anyway, so there was an established, close-knit community. And we moved into that and we worked hard at implanting ourselves. So... And it's not hard to... I, I go to the, try and go to the similar, same pubs regularly, right? See, it's not hard ministry, this, is it? <laughs> go to the same cafes. Go hang out. Go to the same shops. And I've, this, I'm talking 30 years of this now. So uh, I, I, joined a, I joined a political party. Right, you can guess which one later, right? <laughs> I joined a political party and became part of the local, well, I go to the local gatherings, right, and meet. It's a very different world, right? They're quite weird, some people who get involved in politics, but that's what it is. I'm, but I'm making friends with them. Some of them are passionate and really care. In fact, they asked me to speak on the strength of invisible divides about this very subject, the missing class, because the Labour, the, oh no, I've told them now. <laughs> <laughs> the Labour Party, I genuinely, that was a genuine mistake. The Labour Party was a working class movement and has become now a middle class movement and is the, the, the completely disconnected from the working class, right? And, and so, but I was asked to speak. Some of my, my, my MP and the previous MP and some notable councillors came to the book launch of Invisible Divides and were so struck by it that they wanted to hear more. That's good, isn't it? Because it's about Jesus being at the heart of it all. And Jesus was at the heart of that political party as well, actually. But that's another seminar as well. So well, I would, we would work hard. We would... I become a secretary of a local amateur boxing club. That opened up another world, right? I, I was never a boxer. I never liked boxing. I went to a boxing gym once and I got punched in the nose. I thought, what is the point of this? But my, two of my sons, as, as young boys, and well, one of them's still doing it now. He's 32, but they're 34. And we're, so I got involved just as a dad and then was drawn in. But it opened up a whole new subculture. Most of those kids were working class kids and the adults and the parents and all the rest of it. But what a fantastic opportunity to be the church man in amongst that aspect of society. And seeing, seeing boys, there's one boy now who's a British, middle, the British middleweight champion. He's a, Christian, he's a Christian lad. He was an amateur at our club. It's great, isn't it? 
Right, it's just these ways of reaching to the missing class and providing a, a, a route into the life of the church. One of the boxing coaches, while I'm talking about that, we invited him to church. I invited him to our, come to my house for Christmas dinner once. We, we, traditionally, we used to go to the local pub for a couple of pints while my wife cooks a lovely Christmas dinner. That's, that's my contribution to Christmas dinner. I'll get out, I'll get out of the way. Took him, took him down there. He's a, he's a West Indian fella, similar age to me. And he, we looked around in the pub there and it's quite, he said, I'm the only black man in this pub. And I said, yeah, and you could knock them all out, couldn't you? So it doesn't matter. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't any racism. He was just very aware of that fact. But So he'd become my friend as well. Come to the church, you know. There's lots of ways we can connect. A few, I do funerals, right? Um, as part, part of my job, I do some funerals. But then the local funeral directors, have, I've got a bit of a reputation now. So I just did a funeral last week. And they phoned me up and said, I've got a funeral for you. I think you'll be a good fit for the family. What they meant was, because I don't talk very well, see, it's my accent, I think. But because there was a culture, and it was very interesting that the family was so appreciative and they loved it and they said, you're not like a proper vicar, <laughs> right? You're one of us. You're one of us. And that's a compliment, isn't it? So, and that again opens up doors. Now, you've got to be yourself, don't pretend to be someone else. I'm being myself. We've all come from different backgrounds, different things and events have shaped us with different classes, even in this room. Be yourself, but you can still reach out in different ways. I'm just sowing a few, throwing out a few seeds. But when we do, and when we see people added to our number, we have to be aware what church looks like. I want to think, think about your church. It, it, and think about diversity in lots of ways, right? Class, nationality, socioeconomic, age, right? All, all, all those things, it'd be great to have a real mix in the church. But when you get together, are they segregated, are they assimilated, or are they integrated? Se when I say segregated, I mean group, like groups sticking together. So they're in the church, they're enjoying church, maybe, but it's like the, the white working class people are here and the Nigerian group are there and the old people are over here and they don't really mix with one another because they've got the, that's a segregated church, right? Or an assimilated church, and this happens quite a lot. So people come in amongst you who are different, but because there's a dominant culture, they over, slowly over time become like you and they're, they're starting to socialize in ways that you do and you know they, they say they like the things like you do you know the west wing we i've got the box set of the west wing as well i've never seen an episode of it actually but it's a christian it seems a bit maybe it's not in your church in our church it's a christian thing i think you've got to watch the west wing have you <laughs> a box set of the west wing or boxing i'd rather watch boxing but um so, so assimilated, becoming like the people around you, or integrated, where we accept and honour and celebrate our differences. That's a good-looking church then. 
It's a tough church to lead. It's a, sometimes a tough church to be part of because there can be so much room for misunderstanding. You know, and, and, that, and that shows itself in uh, hospitality is a great one, right? When we first become Christians, right, the church we, me and my wife went into, actually me and my girlfriend at the time, we went into, um, was very predominantly middle class. Lovely, lovely people. We're still, we're still good friends with, with some of those people who, who shaped us as Christians, right? But socially, we were so different, right? So that, we was invited, before I was even a Christian, my, my, my girlfriend became a Christian before me, and she's my wife now, she's sitting over there. 40 years married next year, look. Child bride, forty. So, so we was invited round someone's house for for supper. I'd never ate in anyone else's house, other than my nan and one of my aunts, and she was a rubbish cook, right? So this was just so culturally and socially awkward for me. I said, "We ain't going round there." No, you've got to come. They're lovely. You must. Uh, so. Because, and I found through my long, long time in church that hospitality in, in Christian circles is essentially defined by our dinner party around someone's house, where you turn up around half seven, eight is quite late, and, and you've got to be gone. There's no one ever says when you should go, but you've got to be gone before 11, right? Have you been, do you know what I'm saying? So, so we, we need to redefine hospitality. Be prepared to meet someone in a pub or a cafe or, a you know, a third space. Go a football with them. I took, because uh, I've told you I'm a, a, part, a member of the Labour Party. I don't, it, there's lots of the Labour Party I don't like, right? But anyway, so I, I was speaking at our local ward gathering with, with our two, um, with our three councillors and other activists. I'm not even an activist. I never go out with them. I just go and turn up at these meetings. And I said, look, you need to implant yourself. Get involved in the community. Why, why not be seen at Millwall, which is our local football team? Oh. <laughs> oh. So I said, why not go? To, let's go. I said, let's go to Millwall. So there was about 10 of us, <laughs> one, one Tuesday night, went down the den for football. There's all these slightly awkward, you know, quite middle-class Labour Party members gone to Millwall. But it's been a talking point ever since. And one of the guys has really picked this up and he sort of regularly books tickets and takes a, a little gang handful with him. So there's, but all these things are connections. All these things mean there's another opportunity. You know, so many times you're sitting either, you know, at a football game, often at half time or something, or, or the, having a drink afterwards, and people say, how did you get into that church thing then? Tell me about, why, why are you a Christian? And then there's just clear opportunity to preach the gospel, isn't there? Because you're actively putting yourself in a place I mean, it's not hard. It's not a hardship for me. But putting yourself in a place before people, which, is, which gives you access to them and their lives. We, we used to do, I used to do um, Kids Club back in the day, based on the Bill Wilson model in New York, if anyone's ever come across that. Loved it. 
I loved it. We used to have a, up, upwards of a couple of hundred kids, local kids, not church kids, coming every Saturday morning. But the key to Kids Club was we visited every child on our books in their home every week. Now, I know some clubs are much bigger than ours, but we were visiting about 650 kids in their home every single week. That puts you in the community. I made genuine friendships, which have lasted to this day, with the parents of those kids, um, just by going around visiting, you know? In fact, because that was such a long time ago now, there's people I know who are adults with kids of their own. One, one lady, but she became the manager of a local pub, and I, I keep talking about pubs, don't I? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't spend loads of time in pubs, more than my wife would like, but I don't. Um, and I walked into this pub, and this, the lady behind the bar started singing a kids' club song to me, right? Because she she's now an adult, but she still remembers it. And she said, we should do a reunion, <laughs> right? <That's, laughs> but you're connecting with the community, constantly connecting, and that means you're reaching the missing class. You're missing the class that is largely unrepresented in our churches with a few notable exceptions, just in case Sam Ward's watching this after. So be strategic as you reach out with your social life. Be strategic. See, I'm not talking about projects. I'm talking about you and what you do with your time. Spend time with people different to you. Whether they are working class, different age, different nationality, different socioeconomic background. But do it and be intentional about it. One of the things that I think is a, a huge challenge to us but is so necessary is raising up working class leaders. And I, I, I used to think about this and think, how do you do it and what, what do you do? And then, and then I thought, oh, I'm a working class leader, I suppose, aren't I? <laughs> a bit a slow one. But, and, but what happened with me was... The two pastors of the church I was part of when I first became a Christian gave me loads of their time. And they, would, they taught me how to pray. They taught me how to read the Bible. They taught me how to be a dad. They taught me how to be a husband. They'd come around and tell me off when I was doing, you know, well, you shouldn't really have let that go. And why haven't you mended that dripping tap yet? Literally. Because I was good at... I was, expert at procrastination right so think and these these wonderful guys shaped me as Christians but that was it was a lot of time it's time consuming is effort but what it was it was like being an apprentice I, I was I used to be a bricklayer and as a bricklayer as a boy going onto a building site you learn you know very quickly as a teenager that you are bottom of the pile Right, because people make sure you are aware of it in lots of different ways. So you understand where you are, and then people teach you, right? Teach you how to lay bricks. And I'm a left-handed bricklayer, by the way. And so first of all, you, you're watching them, and you're watching how they do it, and you're picking up the culture and the values and how things are done. And then eventually they let you have a go. And they'll come and look at what you've done, and they say, well, knock that down and start again because you didn't do it very well. And you have another go, and you slowly you're learning skills, and slowly you're learning culture, and slowly you're developing as a tradesman, 
and eventually you're qualified. Eventually you're good enough and, and you're doing your own thing. And in, in turn, you're encouraging and equipping, in, equipping others to do the same. It's very different from the way we typically in the UK um, get church leaders because an academic qualification in lots and lots of denominations is a bare minimum, a bare minimum to have a, a degree level qualification. Nothing wrong with that, but it's very restricting and it also narrows your, the classes who are going to come into leadership. So I think somehow we need to make some changes in how we bring on leadership. There's a quote in the, in the book Invisible Divides um, from Bishop Lynn Cullens, who actually spoke at um, Jubilee Plus conference a year or two ago, if you remember. Um, but she, she said this. She said, at a regional church leadership meeting a few years ago, one of the clergy recounted a phone call that she had received. A young woman with a strong working class accent had phoned her to ask whether she could discuss a strong call she felt for ordination. She's an Anglican. <coughs> When the woman arrived, she was wearing leopard print leggings and Ugg boots and had bleach, bleach blonde hair and eyelashes thick with mascara. The priest expressed amazement at the way in which the woman articulated a passionate personal faith and a sincere and informed vocation to ministry. So did you put her through to the diocese then, she was asked. Oh no, she laughed. Of course not. What would they have made of me sending someone like her through to them? Now, I know that's a different denomination to us, but I do see that attitude at times. That sort of slight superiority based on how someone looks and speaks, the clothes they wear, the way they do their hair. And we can subconsciously, partly because like Gillian Evans, who I quoted right at the beginning, talks about that segregation based on disdain and that tribal view, well, they're not like me. So we tend to sort of dismiss. We need to challenge that. And we need to change that. And if we want to reach working class areas in this nation, it matters massively who the church leaders are in those communities, I believe. We need to identify those leaders. Thank you. We need to identify those leaders. Leaders from similar backgrounds to those we want to see transformed by the gospel. And to do that, we need to change not only our structures, but our attitudes. And some of those attitudes are subconscious attitudes. So we, we've got to really examine ourselves. You think, do I think like that? Well, I don't think I do. Maybe I do. You see? Let's prepare. Let's be prepared to change our expectations and existing structures. Now, not everyone in this room is able to do that if you're not that influential in, you know, from a leadership position. But if we're looking for potential leaders who can confidently reach out to working class communities, that's where we need to go. The NIV puts it in Acts 4. It refers to Peter and the other apostles as unschooled, ordinary men, but noted that they'd been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. There's a fella, like I said, I like my church history. There's a fella by the name of Tommy Medhurst. Tommy Medhurst was reckoned to be um, 
C.H. Spurgeon's first student. Spurgeon, if you haven't heard of him, was uh, um, known as the Prince of Preachers and uh, based in London for many years. And it was like a superstar preacher, really. Uh, anyway, Tommy Medhurst, he grew up on the mean streets of Bermondsey, actually, uh, where, very close to where I live now in the mid-19th century. He didn't do much in the way of schooling, but it didn't really matter because his job was a rope maker's apprentice. It's close to the docks, and there's a number of rope walks still where we live, long straight roads where the big hemp ropes that were used in shipping at the time were made. And those ropes were, were waterproof with tar. So this, this fella would have, would have always smelt of the strong aroma of tar. He had a rudimentary education, and he heard Spurgeon preach once, and he wrote to him. And he wrote to Spurgeon, and he said in his letter, he said, how am I to find Jesus? How am I to know that he died for me? Good things to ask, isn't it? And Spurgeon wrote back. I mean, there wasn't many other ways to communicate in them days, was there? So he wrote back and he's concluded his response saying, there is the cross and a bleeding God-man upon it. Look to him and be saved. And Tommy Medhurst did just that, right? He looked to Christ and was soundly saved. And almost immediately, he began preaching on the streets of Suffolk, where, close to where I live. And, and, and he was overflowing with gospel passion and he would get out there and he would proclaim the gospel. That's my timer. That gives me five minutes, right? I've put it five minutes early just to let you know. Um, so, <laughs> so, so these, he, the members of his church heard him preaching and they were outraged. Do you know why? And it says they were outraged at what they called his want of education. And that the standard of spoken English left something to be desired. So they, wrote, they went to C.H. Spurgeon himself and told him this. And Spurgeon called him in, right? He had a chat with him. And he, and he discussed it with him. And Medhurst said, I must preach and I shall preach unless you cut off my head. Right? Spurgeon didn't decapitate him. He left him to carry on. And this guy, this rope maker's apprentice... Right, went on to pastor churches in Scotland, Glasgow, Coleraine in Ireland, London, and Portsmouth on the south coast. He personally baptised 1,000 people. Right? That's the working class kid from Bermondsey. Because he was given a chance. He was allowed to go he, with his rough language and his uh, scant education. And I think we need to take more chances like that. Whatever level of leadership we're talking about... Um, and that his story should challenge us, you know, because how good would it be today to see more and more men and women like him coming to minister to our estates and how our forgotten communities. You know, there's many, many little towns up and down this nation where the traditional industry, which they grew around and flourished around, has gone, right? And all that's left is, is hopelessness. And poverty. And those communities are today's equivalent of those vicious Victorian slums that Tommy Medhurst and others were preaching into. Who's going to go to them today? Who's going to go with the eternal message of hope and good news today? 
We've got to do it, haven't we? We've got to go. Because there's people dying to hear about Jesus. And by and large, in the recent history, the church has neglected them. Not out of malice, but out of ignorance. And particularly when you can grow a church by reaching university students and getting other mobile middle-class people to move house and set up a church plant with you and then reach more people like yourselves, it's no wonder the church has got a dominant culture. We've got to break that mould because there's a missing class from our churches and it should break our hearts. And we can do it in our own way. Whatever your character, whatever your personality, whatever your background, you can do it. Thanks so much to Paul Brown. And if you want to buy his book, co-written with Natalie Williams from Jubilee Plus, it's called Invisible Divides. And the link to that will be in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us today for this seminar from the Churches That Change Communities conference. And you'll hear more content from that conference over the coming weeks. So I look forward to being back with you again soon. Underneath the shelter of your